1: Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
2: Hey Molly, this is Val, I'm 38, I'm a premium submarine, and um, I've been listening to your podcast for not too long, just a few months now, but your episode um, four especially on dysfunctional families and your shame series spoke to me so clearly. I could go into this more I'm not sure how much I can hear because of a trigger warning, but it affected me so greatly that i when I was in a position last week where I just fully decided not to be alive anymore, and I had things set up um, honestly, after listening to that episode i I took things down. And I made an appointment with my therapist for the next day because it was the first time that I ever felt heard. Even though you were the one talking, it was like you were speaking directly to me and I felt so understood and so held. And you said that there's healing is available and I'm determined to heal now. It's not just me and I'm not alone and I don't feel like I'm drowning so much anymore. So, I wanted to thank you for all that you do and for the community that you've created. And thanks for saving my life. Love you. Wow, Val.
0: I love you too. This voicemail took me <laughs> about a half an hour to recover from. Just, I speak into this microphone every week. And it's kind of like speaking out into the abyss, even though I know people are listening. I see the downloads going up and up and up. But it's when I receive messages like this that remind me why I'm doing what I'm doing. And they remind me too that all the pain that I went through, that I just couldn't make sense of, I understand, it makes sense now. I had to go through these underworld experiences to be able to speak to people who are going through the same thing. And I truly believe that you can't help lead people out of the dark unless you've been there yourself. There's an archetype in Jungian psychology called the wounded healer archetype, and I really relate to and resonate with the description of that particular archetype. And I think many of you out there listening probably relate to this too. It's hard to understand and make sense of this deep pain many of us are carrying. But what I've learned through my recovery process and what this beautiful community that's gathered around my work has taught me is that there is purpose to this pain and I'm making meaning of it and transmuting it with this work and we're all learning and healing together and I'm just so grateful and honored to have such a strong, resilient community of human beings gathered around what I'm doing here and for what it's worth, Val, I'm so happy you're still here and never forget, you saved your life someone who has struggled deeply with bouts of suicidal ideation. What leaning into depth psychology and the work of Carl Jung and myth and mysticism has taught me is that right now we're living in a time devoid of myth and meaning and people that came before us had rights and initiatory experiences baked in to moving through different phases of their life. And I read somewhere once that when we're feeling suicidal, that it's not that we want to die physically, but we're longing for a spiritual death, a metaphorical death. But because we've lost those initiatory experiences in society, we don't understand that and so part of us wants to die but it's not us that wants to die. We want to die and become reborn. And I'm so glad that you recognize that Val and you were so brave to reach out for help and that that part of you that wants to live and transform and alchemize this pain into something beautiful won that inner battle. That's the strongest, purest part of you Now, if you're new here, welcome to the podcast. My name's Molly, and this is Back from the Borderline. And I don't want to talk to your personality, I don't want to talk to your disorder labels. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality, too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power. You just didn't know that, but now you do. And on this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with, contemplating, and integrating the concepts we'll explore together in these episodes, you will emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. In her voicemail, Valerie mentioned that she was particularly impacted by the episode in my Toxic Shame series all about the different roles in dysfunctional family systems I'm not going to rehash all of this because I detailed it at length in my shame series, so if you haven't listened to that, you can go back and check it out. But the idea is, is that families are always seeking homeostasis or balance. When one or more family members are struggling to self-regulate in appropriate ways, regardless of the reason... Other family members may unconsciously step into certain dysfunctional roles as an attempt to rebalance the family and avoid self-reflecting on their own painful or stressful experiences and emotions. The types of dysfunctional family systems that often fall into these unconscious role type patterns happen to be family systems that include emotionally or psychologically disturbed phenomenon. This can include sexual abuse, physical abuse, religious fundamentalist abuse, really dogmatic families or where there is extreme emotional neglect. It's important to understand that this is unconscious. This happens outside of the conscious awareness of most people and so It's often that you will hear about dysfunctional family roles just as Val did and have an aha moment of saying, Oh, I played this role my whole life and it was never who I was. Now, there's different roles that people step into in dysfunctional family systems. A few of them are, just to name them, are the enabler, the hero, the lost child, the mascot and lastly the scapegoat sometimes there aren't enough people in a family system and it is possible that you may have been forced into multiple roles or you may have moved from one role to the next because these things can shift with time but as i moved through the shame series and as i moved through my own healing and i receive voicemails from my listeners I had a little bit of an intuitive nudge as I was moving through this shame series and what I feel is that many people who are drawn to my work happen to be forced into one particular role that I think often people with big feelings and who want to call out the injustice in their family systems, and in society at large, are often forced into. And that is the role of the scapegoat. I couldn't think of a better way to introduce and give a great example of the scapegoat than from the book The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Scarlet Letter was written in the year 1850. It was set in 17th century Puritan, Massachusetts. The story revolves around Hester Prynne, a woman who gives birth to a child out of wedlock and is condemned in her town for adultery. And as punishment, she's forced to wear a Scarlet Letter A on her chest as a mark of shame and public humiliation. Hester refuses to reveal the identity of her child's father, leading to speculation and judgment within her community. Hester's daughter Pearl is born and grows up as a symbol of her mother's sin, often displaying a mysterious and ethereal demeanor. Hester supports herself and Pearl through her skilled needlework, all while enduring the judgment and hypocrisy of the puritan society projecting their own shadows and pain onto her the scarlet letter follows hester's struggles with wearing the scarlet letter her interactions with other characters and her internal conflicts in the book the reverend arthur dimsdale a respected clergyman is revealed to be the child's father but keeps his guilt a secret He's tormented by his hidden sin and this leads him to deteriorate physically and emotionally. Roger Chillingworth, Hester's husband who arrives in the town disguised as a doctor, seeks revenge against Dimmesdale for his role in Hester's downfall. Chillingworth's obsession and manipulation contribute to Dimmesdale's suffering. The climax of the book occurs during a public gathering where Dimmesdale confesses his guilt and reveals the Scarlet Letter on his chest. He dies shortly after, finally freed from his guilt. Hester and Pearl eventually leave the town, but Hester returns years later, living a solitary life with her daughter. The Scarlet Letter explores themes of sin, guilt, public shaming, toxic shame, societal hypocrisy, and the complexities of human nature. It delves into the struggles of its characters within this rigid Puritan society, showcasing the emotional and psychological impact that public shame has on people and how we can search for integration and redemption. In the book, Hester is a remarkable and complex character who embodies the struggles and complexities of women's experiences in a patriarchal society and at the heart of the story we find Hester as a woman who is branded and forced to wear this scarlet letter A on her chest as this punishment for her supposed sin. This emblem not only stands for adultery but as you move through the story it becomes a symbol of Hester's strength, resilience, and rebellion against societal norms. In her portrayal, Hester challenges the traditional roles assigned to women in her Puritan society. She's a single mother who refuses to reveal the identity of her child's father, a stance that goes against the norms of the time. Her strength and ability to withstand public shaming and condemnation are testaments to her individual agency and defiance of societal expectations. Hester's experiences highlight the dichotomy between public and private spheres. She's ostracized by her community for this perceived transgression, but she also engages in acts of kindness and compassion that reveal who she truly is. Her interactions with the less fortunate and her willingness to help others demonstrate her capacity for empathy and the complexities of her identity beyond this A, this scarlet letter she wears on her chest, this society that wants to just label her for one thing that she's done in her life, a projection of all of their own shame and issues onto this one woman. We can look at the characters in this novel almost as a dysfunctional family system. And in this family system, in the novel, Hester Prynne is the scapegoat and it's important to recognize how she exemplifies the role of scapegoat within the novel. A scapegoat is a person or group blamed for the mistakes or problems of others, often as a way to divert attention from larger, systemic societal issues. In the book, Hester becomes a scapegoat for the hypocrisy and moral shortcomings of the Puritan society she lives in. The Puritan society, though outwardly strict and moralistic, is rife with hidden transgressions and moral ambiguity. The public humiliation of Hester serves as a distraction from the moral decay within the community itself. By branding her with the scarlet letter and subjecting her to public shame, the society focuses on her individual sin rather than addressing the deeper issues that plague the community this serves as a means of preserving the appearance of virtue and deflecting attention from the rampant hypocrisy that exists. So in this way, Hester Prynne becomes a convenient target for societal frustration and serves as the vessel onto which the community can project their own fears and insecurities. Hester's resilience and refusal to be completely defined by her punishment challenges the scapegoat role imposed upon her, making her a powerful symbol of resistance against societal pressures. Hester Prynne is a multifaceted character. Her role in this dysfunctional, societal, and family system of this small community, her role as the scapegoat exemplifies the way In which marginalized individuals are often blamed for larger systemic issues, diverting attention from underlying problems. Through her strength and refusal to conform, Hester stands as a beacon of resistance and a reminder of the dangers of allowing society or even our families to conveniently assign blame to an individual rather than confronting their own shortcomings, and shadows. Thinking about Hester made me really start thinking about how people with symptoms of quote-unquote a mental illness or, if we're thinking way back in time, women who were labeled hysterical, these people are often forced into the scapegoat role similar to Hester. The parallels between the societal treatment of people with symptoms of quote-unquote mental illness or quote-unquote disorders and the scapegoating of characters like Hester are significant. Historically and even in some contemporary contexts, societies have often used the concept of hysteria to marginalize and control individuals oftentimes women, who exhibit emotional or psychological distress that falls outside of the accepted norms. And men can absolutely be forced into the scapegoat role as well, especially if they're displaying more emotions, bigger emotions, than is accepted in the stereotypical expectation of how men should display their feelings. Similar to Hester's public branding and shaming, people with symptoms of mental illness or big feelings are subjected to stigmatization, blame, and isolation. And I want you to remember that this can happen in societies as well as families. A society is just a wider family system. So let's see how this works, just like with Hester's case. Societies and families, seek to maintain a sense of normalcy and uphold established power dynamics this is very important people with big feelings or hysterical reactions or too needy right these challenge the societal or familial expectations and these individuals are often seen as disruptive or challenging to the status quo And by singling them out and treating them as different, disordered, dysfunctional. Societies and families attempt to maintain control and preserve the dominant social order, or in the case of many dysfunctional families, it protects them from having to actually deal with the true root of the dysfunction. Also, just like Hester was scapegoated to divert attention from the moral failings of the Puritan society, People with big feelings or hysterical reactions can often be scapegoated as a way to avoid addressing deeper societal and familial problems, and focusing on this person's hysteria or mental illness deflects attention from these broader issues, systemic inequalities, and social injustices. Hysteria and mental illness have historically been misunderstood and shrouded in fear. And just like Hester's scarlet letter became a symbol of fear and ostracism, people with mental health symptoms are often feared due to a lack of understanding and societal misconceptions. And this fear can lead to further isolation and the tendency to push such individuals to the margins of society. Scapegoating people with mental health symptoms can also be a way for society to exert control and enforce conformity. And this happens in family systems too. By labeling the one person in the family as hysterical or mentally unbalanced, the family can dismiss their experiences and opinions, preventing them from challenging the dominant narrative. And this control helps maintain the norms of the family and prevents any potential disruptions caused by those who deviate or step out of line in some way. And just like in Hester's time, people with mental health symptoms who have been shoved into the scapegoat role whittles away over time at their power and agency. The stigmatization and scapegoating these people face are exacerbated by their marginalized positions, making it incredibly difficult for them to advocate for themselves and challenge the labels imposed upon them. Why? because they start to develop toxic shame. They actually start to believe that something is wrong with them. They start to identify unconsciously with this label. It's a very insidious, pervasive thing that occurs over time. The reason why I'm making this episode, and we're gonna be diving into another multi-part series, because I wanna help you if you have been forced into the scapegoat role, I wanna help you reclaim your agency. I wanna help you understand what's been done to you, the unconscious aspect of it, and help you realize your true power and agency that you can break free from this role. You can relearn who you truly are. I, myself, identify with this role I was what is called in therapy as the identified patient I was the difficult child I have a memory of being around 15 or 16 in a particularly fiery screaming match with my dad where he told me that without me in the family everything would be fine I was the source of the drama but in reality that wasn't true There was so much unspoken, generational trauma. I was in a family with two parents who didn't want to look at their own trauma. They wanted to shove it down. I didn't want to do what my mother did, which was look away from it. The amount of times I remember having conversations with my mom saying, Why do you always have to have the last word with your dad? I wanted to speak out against the injustice. And this trend has followed me my entire life. I've had difficult times in workplaces because I wanted to call out the injustices that I saw, and I even found myself falling into the scapegoat role in the places that I would work. I was so angry of people taking advantage of their power. I grew up where I was groomed by men in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s, starting online when I was just 13-14 to years old. I was a victim, multiple times, of sexual assault. I spent time working in the sex work industry and witnessed some of the most horrifying abuses of power. I spent time as a songwriter in the music industry and had an entire record deal fall apart because of the abuses of power and sexual transgressions by men who were more powerful than me and had the power to make all of my dreams and all of my masters go away just because I wouldn't sleep with them. I know the scapegoat role. And I found myself years later in my bedroom in LA, just like Val, wondering what was the point, making plans to take my own life and the only thing that stopped me from doing that was looking into the eyes of my dog, who's all I had at the time, and didn't want to imagine her walking around my dead body after I had killed myself. I cared more about my dog than I did about me. I know the depth of this pain. And it's for this reason that we're going to be taking the deepest possible dive into the role of the scapegoat. And if you If you were the identified patient, if you were the dramatic one, if you were the one that wanted to call out the injustices and you had to hold the pain for your own family, if you knew there was something wrong, but you just kept getting beaten down, maybe physically, but maybe just verbally, this series will be for you. And I want to help you find freedom from this role. I want to help you forgive yourself and realize that it's not you. This is a systemic problem. But in order to be able to help other people, we have to heal ourselves and see these invisible, insidious dynamics that are at play and be able to understand and recognize it for what it is so that we're no longer a victim. We're no longer identified with the role and with the sense of powerlessness, debilitating feelings of emptiness and not even knowing who we are. That's what this series is going to be for. So without further ado, let's dive into this. Let's alchemize this together and emerge transformed. All right, everyone, we are in for a long bumpy ride exploring the family scapegoat role. Now, the different roles... And these dysfunctional roles come from a therapeutic modality called family systems therapy. You may have heard of it. Those who were assigned the role of family scapegoat in their dysfunctional family system endured very specific abuses and emotional injuries. They're very distinct and damaging. And the role of scapegoat is actually very little understood in the professional therapeutic community. You won't often hear it be brought up. And so that's why I'm really hoping by exploring this together, that I might be giving you one of those aha moments, even if you spent many years in therapy. And maybe this is something that if you are in therapy and you identify with it, you can bring this to your therapist and discuss this more deeply. The abuse endured by individuals who fall into this dysfunctional scapegoat role is also known as psycho-emotional abuse. And today we use the term scapegoat in discussions of collective morality. We've become attuned to finding the phenomenon of scapegoating in social psychology and there are many studies of the scapegoat pattern as it occurs in small groups, in families, and in ethnic and national politics. It's important to understand that we apply the term scapegoat to people and groups who are accused of causing some kind of misfortune to the group or family system. And putting this label of scapegoat on someone, even though I want to let you know and remind you that it doesn't happen consciously it's not like you're, the family is aware that they're doing this but by unconsciously shoving someone into the role of the scapegoat or the problem child the identified patient this relieves others the scapegoaters of their own responsibilities and it's used to strengthen the scapegoaters sense of power and righteousness So how can you tell if you were forced into the scapegoat role? If you were the scapegoat of your family system, you might have felt like you were bullied, shamed, or rejected, or even blamed by a parent, sibling, or some other relative while you were growing up. Maybe you were targeted and kind of were the subject of What felt like a smear campaign you might have been called crazy um a liar fake or like what happened to me like you're the problem without all of your drama this family would be fine maybe you've dropped into feelings of really believing that like if i was just not here in my family everyone would be happy what's wrong with me right and the really sad part of Being the family scapegoat is even often when people that are in the dysfunctional scapegoat role seek out for mental health treatment or assistance, or even maybe reach out to a friend or family member, they're often told to some extent, you know, find a way to get over it. Forgiveness, right? This is your family. It can't be that bad, right? This kind of stuff you may have been told. And this leads to you feeling hopeless, alone, chronically empty, and deprived of emotional understanding and support. And it just is further validation for these deep feelings inside of you that lead to the toxic shame that we explored in our eight-part series of, okay, something must be fucking wrong with me. Maybe I am the problem. And this is the result of this psycho-emotional abuse insidious abuse. We talked about it in the shame series. It's covert, hidden. It's not immediately obvious, but this is what makes it so damaging and so difficult to recover from because we aren't aware that it's there. If you've been scapegoated by your family, and especially if this happened and started when you were really, really young, and this psycho-emotional abuse has been chronic, you will develop pretty specific challenges and symptoms in your adult life. So if you're someone who struggles with anxiety, codependency, imposter syndrome, depression, uh, CPTSD symptoms, borderline personality disorder, this could be potentially, I'm not saying it is, could be the result of being scapegoated by your family as being seen as the identified patient and how this usually shows up this was my experience growing up we went to family therapy one time and we essentially sat down with the therapist and my parents made it very clear there are problems with this child being me basically the vibe was fix her right she's a problem fix her and as soon as this therapist who was actually doing their job started asking questions of my dad and I was speaking up and talking about you know what was actually going on in our home that was the last time that we ever went back to that therapist perfect example of the identified patient or the scapegoated child and i had so much anger and rage at this and Then I started, quote unquote, acting out. This is when I started shoplifting, when I started really just paying attention to the guys who were grooming me online. I was so angry and just had nowhere to turn and felt so misunderstood and so out of place in my family home that I just gave in to addictions and compulsive and maladaptive behavior and I started really acting like I hated myself because I did. So for you to even begin to think about recovery from being forced into the family scapegoat role, you need to understand that this is intergenerational. This stuff goes so deep. And if you listen to the series on toxic shame, we talked a lot about this. There are generations of systemic dysfunction within toxic family systems. And this is usually fueled by a lot of unrecognized trauma that's running underneath the surface, secrets, things that people don't want to talk about, abuse that's not being spoken about. And people involved in the dysfunctional family system are taking part in something called a consensual trance or a survival trance. And this means that there are going to be a ton of stories in this family that need to be supported people are going to take part in defensiveness denial and projection and this is what makes it so hard to recover because this is like psychological warfare that you are enduring when you are part of one of these family systems it's like trying to completely rewire your brain recovering from this. A few episodes back, I interviewed Marine Selene, and she is a family constellations therapist. And there are lots of different therapeutic modalities that encourage you to do something called a family genogram. And I encourage you to do this in your own time, but it Essentially, doing a family genogram helps you really dive into your family system and helps you become aware of different patterns or maybe big traumatic moments that might help you make sense of some of the things that happened in your family, some of the things that you went through. It doesn't make make anything okay, but it does provide a lot of understanding. Doing my own family genogram was really really powerful some of the things that i found out in my own family system right you'll see severe and chronic illness sudden unexpected deaths we had a suicide in my family that was almost not even spoken about Um, stillbirths mental illness maybe a family member being institutionalized divorce abandonment abuse right whether that's like overt or covert sexual abuse physical abuse missing relatives, people being cut off, right? huge financial setbacks like maybe a business going under, these kind of things, this is the fuel for hidden covert trauma that lives in family systems and then people are forced into different roles. All of these issues are projected onto one person conveniently so that the systemic nature of The trauma is not having to be addressed. And if this sounds overwhelming and complicated, well, it is. Because think about this, all of these adverse experiences, you may have heard of something called the ACE score, which is adverse childhood experiences. And there was a study done a while back where the more ACEs you have, it can contribute to more psychological distress in your life, even Uh, physical disease later down the line it's because all of these adverse experiences form this very complicated web of trauma and it makes sense why when you're involved in one of these dysfunctional family systems especially when you are the identified patient or the scapegoat role it can feel just impossible to escape from it all and we've talked on the podcast about the movie the matrix right or even the movie the truman show both of these movies involve someone who kind of wakes up and realizes that they are in this dysfunctional world this dysfunctional system and it's a huge shock right because the entire world that you once knew is different and when you recognize that you were scapegoated when you were forced into this role, your world is never really the same after that. And what makes it even harder, especially in adulthood, if you wake up to this truth, this dysfunctional family system that you were involved in often still wants to maintain homeostasis. And this homeostasis often depends on upholding these stories, these The control, the power dynamics, and all of the false narratives, and you challenging that, especially if you step into recovery, can uncover a whole other host of difficulties, which many of you who have sought therapy may have already been experiencing in your life. And it's my hope that by giving you even further language, especially calling attention to the scapegoat role, that potentially you can have even more fuel to understand more deeply what happened to you. So how exactly is scapegoating abusive? The thing is, is that it's really, really common, even with healthy families, you're going to have fights, you're going to have disagreements. That's just part of it. And I do think there's an aspect of us in this day and age where we're so obsessed with psychology and armchair diagnosing, that we can find problems and we almost expect for family systems and relationships to be perfect. And that's a whole other episode. But with scapegoating, it is pervasive and insidious abuse. People who were forced into the scapegoat role often are described as mentally ill or they have family members doing a bunch of research you know does my child have borderline personality disorder you know you know the type and so if you've been labeled the problem of your family or even if you had that hasn't been spoken out aloud but it is definitely the vibe then there is a high likelihood that this could be the unconscious role that you're playing in your dysfunctional family system and interestingly, scapegoating can often happen in adulthood. This could be a situation where you experience a divorce and you almost feel like your family chooses your ex over you in some way. Another way that you could experience this is almost the feeling that your family shuns and rejects you when you become successful or you're somehow recognized positively for your achievements and it can be really confusing to and deeply, deeply hurtful when you feel like you accomplished something and you're doing really well. And the people that you feel like should be there for you, especially when you really, really need them, or especially when you're in crisis, they're not there for you or they shun you in these moments of need. And this kind of chronic drip, drip, drip of scapegoating experiences throughout your life are often what leads to undiagnosed or untreated symptoms of what often in the DSM might be labeled as complex trauma, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or borderline personality disorder. When you're scapegoated in your family system, oftentimes the damage that you'll experience is mental and emotional, which makes it really confusing. Especially if you felt like you had all of your basic needs met and your family really said, we care about you, we love you, but then you are getting scapegoated in these other ways. It's really, without lack of a better word, like it's a head fuck, right? But it's important to know also that it can also not just be emotional or mental. You could be physically bullied, you could be sexually abused, or even denied the adequate medical care that you need. And so this is when the scapegoat role moves out from just mental and emotional abuse. When I say just, I act, that's definitely not saying that it's not harmful, because it is. But it can also go in the direction of overt abuse in the ways that I just described. If you were forced into the scapegoat role in your family, it's likely that you felt rejected or bullied by a parent, sibling, or in-law, and you are really unable to understand how you became the target. Why do you deserve to hold all of this hostility? It's very confusing. And as I mentioned before, maybe you are the target of some kind of smear campaign in your family. So how that might look is that family members seek to almost defame you or denigrate your character, damage your reputation by spreading negative or false propaganda to other people about you. And often those who are in the family scapegoat role, especially when they're in their adolescence and maybe at the height of their struggling, right? You're self-harming, you're acting out like similar to how I was. It can even be a struggle to find professionals, mental health treatment professionals who understand what it's like to be the focus of these shaming narratives, and holding the generational pain of your family. It is the rare therapist that understands these dynamics. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but we'll do a little recap. Murray Bowen created Family Systems Theory, and in his Family Systems Theory, families are viewed as emotionally interrelated systems, Scapegoating in a dysfunctional family system is like a manifestation of unconscious processes where the family displaces their collective psychological difficulties and complexes onto the identified patient, the scapegoat. And these unacknowledged, unconscious feelings of shame, anger, rage, guilt are projected on to a vulnerable member of the group. A lot of times this can be the youngest child, but it's not always the case. But the scapegoated child is shamed and rejected and blamed for behaviors through a process known as a family projection process. Scapegoating in family systems that are incredibly dysfunctional is insidious. And by that, I mean, it's sneaky. It goes unnoticed. Children who are scapegoated in their dysfunctional family systems are absolutely victims of abuse and neglect. But the thing is, is that this is not very often recognized within um, family court systems, educational systems, and mental health systems. And because scapegoating is subtle, so many of us Who were scapegoated as children and are now adult survivors of this kind of psycho-emotional abuse. We realize this in our adulthood and even therapists and counselors might miss these signs and symptoms associated with being in this most difficult dysfunctional family role. Because everywhere you read it, dysfunctional family roles all suck. They all lead to mental and emotional and potentially physical symptoms of disorder and distress and disease later in life, but the scapegoat family role over and over again is spoken about as being the most difficult and damaging role to take within a dysfunctional family system. What usually happens is an adult who was scapegoated as a child seeks out help from a therapist. They can often find that this true pain and insidious abuse and distress that they experienced is invalidated or minimized by a therapist. You'll often find, especially like family therapists, you know, if you just go to a social worker or someone with no particular understanding of these deeper aspects of depth psychology, intergenerational family trauma, I kind of call them the ABC one, two, three therapists. A lot of times these kinds of therapists can do more harm than good because they'll say things like, but they're your family, you know? Blood is thicker than water. I'm sure they love you. You need to find forgiveness, right? These kinds of things. It's important to keep connection with your family. You know, we need to maintain ties with our family to be healthy. This just reinforces as adults our sense of confusion and isolation and profoundly just like compounds the toxic shame that we feel because yet again we're taking a chance to be vulnerable we think something is wrong we try to seek help from a therapist and then it's just like we're knocked back down and especially when this invalidation comes from like a credentialed professional it can be even more damaging And it can make us less likely to reach out for help in the future. And if this has happened to you, if you felt chronically invalidated even by a mental health practitioner, you may have seen an ABC123 therapist. You also might have been seeing a therapist who's projecting their own shit onto you. Because don't you forget therapists are also just people. There are good therapists and there are bad therapists. And I'm not saying they're bad people, but there are therapists who are like really still stuck in their own shit. They've not done their own work and they should not be therapists point blank period. Just like there are doctors out there who should not be doctors. There are nurses that should not be nurses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's really important to understand that when you are in the family scapegoat role, you're being dehumanized. It's pretty common to sometimes feel left out or excluded from your family for some reason, but you know that with scapegoating, and if you've experienced it, you know that it's different than that. It feels different, and that's the thing. It's a feeling, and that's why when you're in this role, you can feel fucking crazy. Scapegoating is pretty much another form of bullying because scapegoating and bullying are both types of overt and covert forms of psycho-emotional abuse. When you're the scapegoated child, you are often subjected to aggressive domination and intimidation tactics. You can be threatened, force can be used, coercion, and it can feel like you can't escape from this. Parents of scapegoated children might say things like, oh, you know, Sarah has just always had emotional problems. She's been a difficult baby from the beginning. I've just I love her to death, but you know, she's she's just difficult. Or saying, you know, you can't trust anything, Jeffrey says. These kinds of things, right? He's just like his dad. When you're the scapegoated kid. It feels like you're always cast in a negative light. It will feel like your parents or your caregivers portray you in a one-dimensional way. And when you're portrayed in this way, this is what denies you your full humanity. You're being seen for this fake version that your parents have of you in your mind, and it isn't you as a multifaceted, complex human being. The term one-dimensional in this context suggests that the parent of a scapegoated child is not recognizing the child's full range of emotions, experiences and potential complexities and instead as a child you're reduced to a single role, the troublemaker, the problem child, the dramatic one, the emotional one. And this One-dimensional, oversimplified portrayal perpetuates a cycle of negative dynamics within the family and completely hinders the child's personal development. Now, In a healthier family system, parents acknowledge the individuality of each child, including their strengths, weaknesses, and feelings. They provide support, understanding, and guidance to each of their children rather than placing the blame on a single child. So why do parents do this? Why do they scapegoat a child? Why would a parent shame and blame and reject and dominate their own child? The main reason is that the parent is suffering from their own unrecognized, unconscious, and untreated issues, trauma, unconscious material, whatever you wanna call it. They haven't dealt with their own shit. That is obviously not a uh, therapeutic explanation, but that's that's it. That's the core of it. They are projecting their own unresolved trauma, toxic shame onto their child, and this causes them to attack their child to release their pent up frustrations and their own deep feelings of abandonment, toxic shame, and self-hatred onto their kid. And these types of parents, and they're much more common than not, I'd say that they're probably more common than healthy, integrated parents because the repression of toxic shame is a fucking epidemic, an invisible epidemic in our society. These kind of parents that haven't dealt with their own shit and are projecting all over their kid and selecting one child to be kind of the garbage can for all of these unresolved issues Often engage in splitting behaviors. So they even might pit one sibling against another sibling to create like an ally system with them. And parents that split black and white on their kids will tend to see one child as the good child and the other child as the bad child or the scapegoat. And the good child fits another dysfunctional role and mind you, this role is also very difficult and creates a lot of issues. This role of the good kid is the golden child and the bad child is the scapegoat. I was absolutely the scapegoat in my family system and my younger sister was absolutely the golden child role and she has her own Issues that have come from that. That is not an easy position to be put in. My sister endured so much having to step into that role as well. But the role of scapegoat in particular, it's not static though. So if you have multiple siblings in your family, the scapegoat role actually might shift from child to child or even to a parent. And this is particularly when one of the parents might uh, struggle with a mental illness or be um, addicted to a substance or struggle with alcoholism or something of that nature. But however this plays out, the important thing to know is that when a child is scapegoated, they're portrayed as the problem, they're defective, and they somehow deserve the hostility of the family and they are somehow not worthy of the love and inclusion that the rest of the family members are. So this rejected scapegoated kid is objectified, dehumanized, ostracized, and is just a projection screen that is receiving all of the family's dumped out unresolved trauma. Next, we're going to talk about narcissistic family systems and how the scapegoat role plays out here. But I want to preface that with this. Long-term listeners of my podcast know that I am not the biggest fan of labels. I also don't really jive with armchair diagnosing. There is way too much armchair diagnosing going on. I think my ex is a narcissist. My mom was a narcissist. Uh, My mom is a borderline, all this stuff. I think that that is not helpful. The labels to me aren't helpful. We are not mental health practitioners and even mental health practitioners who throw around psychiatric labels like candy don't understand the, that there is no scientific basis of any of these mental health disorder labels, but narcissism is a thing we all have narcissistic traits. There is even healthy levels of narcissism. If you don't have any kind of narcissism, you could be completely buried in toxic shame and think you're a piece of shit. Everybody needs a little bit of healthy narcissism. So when we're talking about narcissism in these dysfunctional family systems and how it pertains to scapegoating, I want you to remember that this is when We are experiencing narcissism in a maladaptive way. And anyone who is experiencing maladaptive levels of malignant narcissism is someone who is in deep amounts of pain. They've repressed a lot of their own toxic shame. It doesn't excuse anything that they've done, but to just Label them as a narcissist also means that we're doing exactly what we don't want to be doing and don't want to have done to us. We don't want to be flattened into a one-dimensional character. So let's just set all of this up with that little preface. When you're scapegoated as a kid in a family system that leans toward the side of like malignant narcissism This is really, really difficult and can lead to serious, serious problems in adulthood. And this is because when the more narcissistic leaning parent, they are ruling the family system like an authoritarian dictator, right? They govern the family system in a way that requires that their children and partner idolize and revere them almost how like a cult leader requires their participants to adore them and comply with their every wish and if you step outside of it it's a problem if you're going with the whole cult vibe it's all good but god forbid you step outside of the power dynamics
4: as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns
0: Children in these kinds of families with this malignant narcissistic vibe children are not individuals you are absolutely all regardless of what dysfunctional role they fall into whether that be the golden child the hero the scapegoat children in these kind of families are just one dimensional mirrors your only purpose is to reflect back to the narcissistic parent their own imagined perfect faultless image So the child that mirrors the parent in ways that makes them feel really good and doesn't go against the grain will often be put into that golden child role, the perfect child that can do no wrong, while the scapegoat child is going to carry this massive burden of the narcissistic parent's repressed, unconscious self-hatred, including those shadowy parts of their psyche that they can't consciously acknowledge or own. Narcissistic leaning parents, it's incredibly common for these kinds of parents to project their own unresolved issues, insecurities, and negative emotions onto their kids, especially the scapegoated child. These types of projections are defense mechanisms that allow the narcissistic parent to avoid acknowledging and addressing their own shortcomings and emotional pain so instead they attribute these undesirable traits or emotions onto the scapegoated child and this allows them to displace their shadow material onto that kid and there are a few different ways that this can happen so this narcissistic parent might use unconscious defense mechanisms projection is a psychological defense mechanism where An individual unconsciously attributes their own feelings, thoughts, or traits onto another person, and narcissistic parents engage in this behavior to protect their self-image and avoid facing their own flaws. In addition to that, by projecting their own negative qualities onto the scapegoated child, the narcissistic parent avoids taking responsibility for their own actions and emotions, And putting a child in the scapegoated role allows them to maintain this facade of being faultless and superior. And this dance of projection that narcissistic parents engage in also serves as a means of maintaining control over the narrative and family dynamics. So by labeling the scapegoated child as bad or troubled, The narcissistic parent gains leverage to manipulate and control them while also getting the bonus effect of diverting attention from their own shit. Projection reinforces the role of the scapegoated child within the family system. As I mentioned before, the child in these narcissistic families becomes a repository or the trash can for all the negativity that the narcissistic parent can't tolerate within themselves. This is why the scapegoat role is so isolating and damaging to a child's sense of identity development. In addition to this, the narcissistic parent might even use the projective negative traits, these things that they don't want to own about themselves, to emotionally manipulate the scapegoated child. So for example, they're going to use tactics like guilt, shame, or criticism to keep whittling down the child to make them feel inadequate or unworthy which serves to maintain the parent's sense of superiority and makes it possible for them to deny their own toxic shame their own repressed issues and I want you to know too this is just another many of the reminders that I've given is this isn't something that the parent is like Dr. Evil rubbing their hands together thinking, haha, I'm going to scapegoat my child. I'm going to use all these tactics. This just happens. It's literally an unconscious process. This is what happens when we don't own our own shit. And this process that's going on behind the shadows without the knowledge, this projection, it begins to blur the lines between the narcissistic parents own issues and the scapegoated child's actual behavior or personality. This is when it gets really tragic. And this can lead to an inaccurate perception of the child's actions, which reinforces the parent's negative view of them. It's like the snake eating its own tail. And projection then often leads to gaslighting, which we've all heard of it. It's been exhaustively talked about and very little understood, in my opinion, similar to like narcissistic abuse. It's taken on a whole life of its own. But Gaslighting is a manipulative tactic where this narcissistic parent would deny their own actions and experiences and instead insists that the scapegoated child is responsible for all the family's problems. And so the result of this is often that the scapegoated child internalizes the projected negativity leading to low self-esteem, self-doubt, internalized toxic shame, borderline traits, right? And the child might carry these feelings into adulthood, which affects their relationships and self-perception. This is when we might start wondering, do I have BPD? Do I, what is wrong with me? This is why I take so much issue with the personality disorder labels and all of these things, because often we are just Victims of psycho-emotional abuse and we have been the trash cans for the projected trauma and shame of our entire family systems Which it makes perfect sense. Why would you would feel chronically empty? Completely unable to regulate our own emotions and feel like we hate ourselves And so therefore our behaviors and actions and coping mechanisms are that of someone who fucking hates themselves It's important to know that it wasn't even until very recently If you're listening in the future, we're recording this episode in 2023. Until very recently, family scapegoating wasn't even recognized as a form of systemic bullying and abuse within the mental health field. The reason for this is because of the insidious nature of family scapegoating. It is supported by these power discrepancies within the dysfunctional family system. The scapegoating parent's stories about the child are typically believed while the scapegoated child's reality and experiences are completely dismissed. And the tragic part is, is that often this even moves into when the child becomes an adult and they may want to grow up and speak out about their negative wounding family experiences with other people. And it is a tragically common thing that adult survivors of child emotional abuse and neglect are told by people that they try to be vulnerable with to stop playing the victim, or eventually you have to move on and learn to forgive. And as I mentioned before, if this comes from a therapist that this person has made themselves vulnerable to open up to, this causes the deepest and most profound sense of interior inferiority, guilt, and shame. The scapegoating parent In a dysfunctional family system is usually the power holder, right? They're in control of the narrative. This parent often has a story about their kid that they will share with anyone who will listen. A story where they are the good one, right? And the scapegoated child is difficult, the problem, bad, too much, and somehow just defective, even though they're trying their best as the good parent. And this distorted, fucked up narrative story that they have designed to elevate themselves and demean and lower their child is often shared within and outside the family. And the result of this is tragically often that siblings, extended members of the family and friends of the family also view the scapegoated child through this distorted, negative lens. And the thing is, when you're the scapegoat, you can sense it. If you inhabited this role, you'll know how it feels to be around friends of your parents or extended family members and have just kind of been going through a really bad patch. Maybe you had a bout of suicidal ideation. Maybe you had to be um, sent to a psychiatric facility or something of that nature. And it's almost like all eyes are on you. You're the bad one. No one, no one seems to want to know What's going on in the family? Because the thing is, no child, quote unquote, acts out in such distressing ways without there being some systemic issues going on in the family. And the thing about narcissistic family systems like this, even when there's no overt abuse, you're not getting hands put on you, you are getting all your basic needs met. As I mentioned, a lot of times I have received emails and voicemails from listeners who come from incredibly wealthy families where they have gotten everything materialistically that they could ever want, but the dynamics in their family are insidious and toxic and they are inhabiting the scapegoat role. And so for you to come out and say that you feel abused and that you feel scapegoated It would be so easy for extended members of your family or friends of your parents to say, wow, what an ungrateful, dysfunctional problem child. It's just, it's so, so common and really, really devastating. And this is how many that inhabit this scapegoat role are described as mentally or emotionally ill, dishonest, the problem child by one or more of their immediate or extended family members. It is absolutely the story of choice for dysfunctional families that scapegoat one of their own children. It's hard to understand on the surface, but it's a very common narrative that the scapegoated kid or even adult child is mentally ill. And this is very common in families where there is one aggressive, dominant family member who seeks to dispower and discredit the victim of their deliberately hostile behaviors. And this is a defensive strategy designed to establish the sanity of the abuser and the insanity of the victim, right? Because who would believe a crazy person? And this leads to children who are scapegoated, having their injuries, their feelings, their illnesses denied by members of their family system. And this is where the invalidation comes into play. And then you grow up to become an adult where it feels like your felt sense experiences aren't real. It's really common that dysfunctional family systems often say things like that the scapegoated family member is dramatic or that they fake things, they're doing things for attention. And this only reinforces the scapegoated child in their feelings of isolation and confusion. And the result of constantly having your own physical and emotional experiences invalidated chronically throughout your childhood, when we grow up as adults, this is when It's so easy for us to deny our body's distress signals when we're not feeling well, or even just doing basic things like showering, or feeding ourselves, or drinking water. We can minimize our own injuries and feel this vague sense or even shame when we're sick, as if we somehow shouldn't be sick or that it's a personal failing on our part when we're not well, or that we're somehow a hindrance when we need to be cared for by other people. I've talked about this at length, primarily on the premium portion of the podcast for my premium submarines, but I experienced a lot of issues with being in my body i often will ignore hunger signals from my body thirst signals from my body so i really really relate to this experience and i've had to learn and relearn rather these behaviors it's really really common for scapegoated adult children to even fear going to the doctor or going for therapy because they're afraid that they're just going to have their experiences or even their illnesses minimized and dismissed by another authority figure. We're thinking that it's just going to be the same thing as when we were a child. Inhabiting the scapegoat role in a dysfunctional family system does harm to something called the emerging self. And this is what causes a developing child to struggle with identifying their wants And their needs and will even have a really hard time forming secure attachments with people later in their life and when you are a scapegoated kid as a survivor as an adult you might even lack the confidence to go after the things you want to pursue your dreams and forming long-lasting trusting attachments with other people because of these relational traumas you endured in childhood. You might even feel like you don't have a right to feel or express yourself authentically because of this internalized toxic shame. Scapegoated adult children really believe that something must be wrong with them because think about it. You basically were part of a multi-year long psyop that lasted for the most of your childhood life probably. And you were too young to understand what was going on. Your brain was very, very vulnerable to these types of psychic abuse and psychic attacks. So it makes perfect sense. So you're really believing something's wrong with you. You bought into the PSYOP and who wouldn't? This means that You'll probably avoid talking about your negative family experiences with other people because of this sense of shame and fear that you learned in childhood that you're never going to be believed, which means like the snake eating its tail that I mentioned, this just results in you becoming further and further isolated, more and more depressed, and this just validates your belief that somehow you're different than other people. You're more fucked up than other people. As a result of having the very core of who you were denied and redefined for you as a child chronically over time by the people that were supposed to love you most, the adult scapegoated child who endured this family scapegoating abuse is going to feel disconnected, dissociated, hopeless, and often even passively and chronically suicidal as adults, which you heard in Val's voicemail and in my own story as well at the beginning of this episode. And you might relate to this. Adult survivors of scapegoating abuse are going to have a difficulty trusting other people because when you grow up and the people that were supposed to love you and protect you failed to do that and exerted wrongful power dynamics over you, rejected, shamed, and blamed you, it makes perfect sense that you would struggle to form meaningful, secure attachments with other people, especially when it comes to romantic and intimate connections. And this is because this scapegoat narrative will almost follow us into adulthood. And this is because it can often feel like there's no way of fixing the situation other than to limit or end contact with even some or all of one's family of origin. And this is a really difficult decision to make that very few people in your life will probably support or understand, and some people are so enmeshed in their family systems that they can't go no contact because they are literally supported or living with their family. It is so incredibly complicated and difficult. So, that's it for the public portion of today's episode. Since this is going to be a multi episode series on the scapegoat role and how it plays out in our family systems and our lives, next week we'll be returning with more on this. Particularly, we will be going through a list of different childhood experiences that are common to survivors of the family scapegoat role. And my intention here in sharing these is to help you identify and have those aha moments and also understand how common this is But because of the fact that this is not recognized in the DSM, this is something that many even therapeutic practitioners are not familiar with and don't often bring up, it's my hope that this can help shine a light on some of these shadowy parts of your own childhood experience, bring light to them, and as we always mention on this podcast, to perform this emotional alchemy. And part of that is Shedding things that no longer serve us. Understanding that this shame, this scapegoat role doesn't belong to you. You can throw it back at the people who gave it to you. Next, we'll be moving into the back half of the episode, which is available only to paying subscribers. And if you're tuning in to the public BFTB feed, you will get to hear a free preview and then it will fade out. To unlock full episodes as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can become a premium submarine. To sign up today, you can check the link in the show notes or visit backfromtheborderline.com. On today's premium portion, we're going to be taking some listener voicemails. People call in and ask me questions, and I give advice the best I possibly can, not as a therapist, a doctor, or anything like that, but as your parasocial virtual big sister, just doing my best, sharing what I can. So without further ado, let's dive into our first voicemail.
5: Hey Molly, um, I'm Austin from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm 30 years old and I'm a five day listener to your podcast. I recently found it through Instagram, just going through one of my sad boy phases getting ghosted by a girlfriend and just listening to your podcast right now has like kind of been a godsend i need something to like keep me busy at work instead of like you know sending another long ass notes app text message to her and uh, obviously like i also relate to like a ton of what is discussed like I always knew I was different I would just tell people I was ADHD or just a lot or too much or even times like autistic just so they would kind of like give me grace for my big emotion personality um, and like I knew this how I am the way I am like stemmed from childhood traumatic experiences but I've never really like done the therapy, or found the community, or really even, like, looked up too much uh, borderline information. Um, I actually first stumbled across the word borderline um, from a Pete Davidson interview. You know, a few years back, I was looking up how to get over a girl, and... (laughs) just clicking so many links I, I stumbled across him being public with his BPD diagnosis and his mental health and I freaking love that you did an episode um, about that because like that's how I found out about Borderline in the first place but I guess why I'm calling and curious about your thoughts is, is how should one break up with a person with borderline traits like I know a lot of couples listen to this podcast together and like I know you don't like want to think about this but like how would you want Zaz to like considerately break up with you the getting ghosted and blocked and the no closure is like kind of all I know and it, it just destroys me yeah you're great awesome bye
0: oh austin thank you so much for this voicemail it always cracks me up <laughs> people trying to shove everything they want to say in this one minute and 30 seconds and the end is always like okay bye <laughs> there is so much in this voicemail that i want to respond to and it really inspired me because i decided that we're going to take the back half of this episode to talk all about ghosting But I want to respond to a few different things in your voicemail first. You know, as someone who has ghosted people myself in really, really inconsiderate ways out of my own trauma and my own inability to have difficult conversations and disappoint people, I have been the ghoster and I have also been ghosted and it is incredibly painful you said it destroys you and you feel this compulsion to send you know the the notes app long text message everybody knows that that has big feelings you know when you send an iMessage that's so long that when you click into it it opens up as a note Like It's no longer a text anymore. It is a note because your iPhone is like, I cannot compute. Are you writing a novel, Ralph Waldo Emerson? Like, bro, this is a text message. Yep, been there. And, you know, I also feel for you because the men are not all right right now, my friends. (laughs) It's hard to be a guy right now And I actually really kind of feel bad for what we're calling cis men. (laughs) I'm kind of getting like really exhausted with all the labels and I'm sure many of you um, relate, but I'm really feeling bad for men right now because it almost just feels like there's so much displaced anger and aggression. And then we have our boys with big feelings and They are oftentimes rejected by women. You know, speaking from experience, when I found myself interacting with a guy who really just wanted to pour his heart and soul out to me, even though that's what I kind of thought I wanted, I found myself gravitating towards these asshole guys who were just dicks and really emotionally disconnected because it allowed me to repeat my traumatic patterns. So I feel really bad for guys who are super sensitive and just wear their heart on their sleeve because I think they get fucking shafted a lot in the dating circles. And it's just another example why... We need to open our hearts. And I have such a beautiful listener community. I feel so grateful to have a listener base that is capable of critical thinking. We have a very diverse listener base from all across the sexuality spectrum, all across um, the gender identity spectrum, in terms of international listenership from all different countries. And we're all just humans with big feelings, we're all really sensitive. And people that are drawn to this podcast have been through a lot and a lot of trauma typically. And Pete Davidson is an interesting example because Pete Davidson, clearly we don't know him as a person. And I can't even imagine what it must be like to be a celebrity and have people speculating about your life. Like I did my best with my episode on Pete to approach it with a really human approach. Um, also with the understanding that all I have is articles about him. And I tried to play a lot of podcast interviews with him, with his own voice, him speaking in his own words, and then reacting to that because we don't really know celebrities and it must be really exhausting, especially when you're highly sensitive to have people commenting and making huge judgments about you and, following every dating choice you ever make. But Pete's an interesting example because he clearly has a pattern from what we can observe of getting into lots of different relationships, losing himself potentially in the partner, making huge like permanent decisions, like getting tattoos of these women's names when he, in the scheme of things, you know, has kind of probably trauma bonded with them and then their relationships end and then he's like right back in another really, really serious relationship. And then you find out that he's back in a rehab facility of some kind, you know, it's he's clearly going through a lot and he's clearly one of these really highly sensitive guys that wears his heart on his sleeve. And, you know, you haven't heard Pete talk about BPD much, in the last few years and i have a theory about this as you all know i think bpd is an absolute trash can diagnosis and it's going to be going away in the near future in my opinion we're not going to be talking about bpd in 10 years and we're going to be looking back in 10 years at wow remember when we called people's personality disordered like that was fucking weird and now we have a much better understanding of how things work so I'd like to think that my podcast will age well in that regard because I do not circulate my content around these psychiatric disorder and dysfunction labels. But as we know, you know, I like to say I identify with some of the symptoms of what is known as BPD. I I choose my language very carefully because you will never catch me saying I have BPD or my personality is disordered. Because I just think it's dehumanizing. I think it takes away our inherent sense of agency. And instead of helping us develop a integrated, individualized identity, it just shoves us into this box. So Pete Davidson, as many of you might know, his father was killed in 9-11. His dad was a first responder. And... This is a trauma. I actually just even get like chills whenever I talk about it. And if you go back and listen to the episode I did on it, that was just even talking about it and reading about what he went through just gave me full body chills. I can't even imagine what that would do to a person. And so Pete Davidson went through probably the biggest big T trauma that anyone could possibly go through. And it's interesting that we're getting this question and talking about this off the back of our part one of scapegoating. He also was scapegoated and bullied like crazy in school. He felt different and ostracized. All of this stuff leads to internalized toxic shame and then acting out behaviors. And then he is the problem child. And I'm not saying that that's what his, his mom made him out to be, but then he finds himself... later on in life, in rehab, in a psychiatric facility, and he's slapped with this disorder label. When in reality, Pete Davidson is a, a victim of a really serious traumatic incident and then also was further victimized over and over and over again through his childhood and adolescence in terms of like bullying and aggression. in that way he was a boy with really big feelings growing up in Staten Island where he himself admitted that, you know, imagine in the nineties, like growing up in the nineties and early two thousands, like it was very common for boys that were cried to be called like a fucking pussy and stuff like this. Right. So imagine what this guy went through. I do not believe that Pete Davidson has a disordered personality at all. I believe that he is a victim of bullying, scapegoating, PTSD, serious, serious trauma. And all of this stuff makes perfect sense. It would make perfect sense that he would feel incredibly empty, that he would struggle with addiction, that he would try to find meaning and wrap his entire identity around the current love interest. All of this stuff makes perfect sense. Austin, you said you were 30 years old and so you kind of are the same age as me, around the same age as Pete Davidson. We're in the same kind of generational vibe and I can imagine it may have been similar to you growing up. And it's so common for all of us to just find ourselves on the internet, like what is wrong with me? But Austin, if you got ghosted, it fucking sucks. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Nobody likes getting ghosted. It's fucking traumatic when someone just cuts you off. And so I want to talk about ghosting because also if you have ghosted someone, I want you to listen to Austin's voicemail and really listen to the humanity of that. When you ghost people, when you cut them off, it's a cowardly thing to do. It doesn't mean that you need to blame yourself. Like, let's not add any more shame to the pile that we already have. I've done it myself, but it was a cowardly and heartless thing to do. And it goes back to the golden rule that we all learn when we're like fucking five years old. Like, treat other people like you want to be treated. I really think that... Society needs an injection of the golden rule. It's almost like we've forgotten about it. We're so busy attacking each other and worrying about setting our own boundaries, but we're totally happy with completely treating people like crap and cutting them off as an excuse of like protecting ourselves, when in reality, it's quite cowardly. There's nothing wrong with needing space from someone or wanting to step away from a relationship, but there are healthy ways to do this. But the problem is is that most of us weren't taught that. And it takes a lot of maturity to an emotional intelligence as well to cut something off with someone in a healthy and respectful way. And Austin, you asked, you know, Zaz broke up with me. How would I feel? And we're married now, so I would hope that he wouldn't just break up with me and ghost me. (laughs) We've sort of made a pretty big commitment, but... If Zaz eventually wanted to get a divorce from me, Zaz is one of the most mature people I know and I know that Zaz would never ghost me or cut me off or split on me and just end things. It would be a discussion that we would have and I know that Zaz would still love me and I know that he would still support me and cheer me on and I really hope that our relationship never comes to that. I hope that our relationship stays strong and we can go the distance and I have a lot of confidence in that. But I would hope that if Zaz felt like this relationship was no longer right for him, that he would handle it in a mature and respectful way and give me a little bit of heads up and us work together to make sure that the transition was smooth. But I think it's important to mention that it's completely different ending a marriage or even ending a long-term relationship. You don't even have to be married. Marriage is just paperwork, right? But if you've been with someone for years, you live together, or as my favorite podcaster Dan Savage says, if you've scrambled your DNA up together and you have children, I really think that the length of time you've been in a relationship The level of commitment and how tangled up your lives are together, it changes how you would end things with them. If you live together and you have kids, you can't just ghost someone. I mean, you can. People do that all the time, tragically, and it ends up in a lot of trauma where someone just packs up and leaves. You hear that story all the time, but you can't do that. (laughs) You have to have a nuanced conversation. Sometimes these splits have to happen in phases. Sometimes you have to manage this in a different way because there are children involved. But when it comes to what you're talking about, Austin, you know, maybe let's talk about ghosting in relation to the dating scene, because I don't know this for sure, but I have a sense that that's what you're talking about. Probably when it comes to just dating, maybe you're dating someone for between, you know, one to one month to a year, you're not living together and you're trying things out and then it just doesn't work. One of the parties decides that this isn't working and they want it to be over. So that's how I'm going to You know, approach my advice here because if I start talking about how to end a relationship that is, you know, multiple years where you're living together, you own property or have children, that's a whole other conversation. As long term listeners of the podcast know, I was actually married once before and my marriage happened when I was 23. I'm 33 now. So it's kind of hard to believe that that was 10 years ago. I moved to another country to be with this person. And three months after our wedding, he ended up cheating on me with a girl on Tinder. I found out and it was horrible. (laughs) I think that I just felt like I was going to die. I was in a foreign country It was literally a few months after our entire family had flown to the middle America, including all of his family from the UK. And I was embarrassed. I was devastated. I, it just, I can't, I can't even describe to you the, the pain I felt, but I couldn't ghost him because I was living with him. And in addition to that, I was literally in the country on a marriage visa So I felt so trapped and so betrayed, and it was just insane, uh, that whole entire experience. Now, I was not the perfect partner. I was not easy to be with. I was so stuck in my trauma at that point. I had so much unresolved sexual trauma that I didn't even want to, it's not that I didn't want to address, it's that I wasn't even really cognizant of it. The abuse, the emotional neglect, all of it. I hadn't addressed it. So I was not an easy person to be with, but that doesn't excuse the cheating. Um, we tried to make it work for about six months and I just couldn't get over it. And interestingly, we tried to make it work. And then I ended up kind of like, falling for a person that I worked with at my job, which was just such a rebound, trauma-bonded. I was crying at work, and of course he came in and, you know, was the savior, and we kind of connected that way. It was not good. I should have healed. I should have told my ex that I couldn't do it, but I just felt trapped, and I was young, you know, and so... He found out that I was talking to this guy at work and so it almost was like he cheated on me and then I was emotionally um, unfaithful to him and then we just couldn't do it anymore. So we ended up breaking up and something that I regret very deeply, his family, especially his mom, did so much for me. I still miss her. It'll make me cry. (laughs) She is one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. Also, he had a lot of friends that became my friends. Um, and I miss them still. I miss his mom. And I just completely cut all of them off. I deleted and blocked all of them. And I ghosted them all. His family that did so much for me. And I still have so much guilt and shame about that. Um, and so I understand ghosting. And the thing is, is that it was just too painful for me. I just, I couldn't see them because it reminded me of the life that I, that was what I felt like was my dream life. I moved to London. I felt like I was going to have kids with this person. I saw my whole life there. I had a whole friend group there and then it was just ripped away from me by a decision to hook up with some dental hygienist on Twitter after three months after we had said vows together. So I try to give myself grace, but I still feel a lot of regret about the ghosting. And one day I may write to his mom and uh, tell her how grateful I am for everything she did for me um, and wish her well. And maybe that will happen one day, or maybe she'll hear this episode one day. Who knows? But she is a beautiful human being. And you know, now that I've moved on and it's been so long My ex is a beautiful human being and we grew together so much and I have love for him and I wish him the best. It took me a really long time to get over it and stop demonizing him. We were both young. Um, I was not the easiest partner to be with either. I can kind of understand why he would be seeking validation outside. It was just a mess. So that's my own personal story so i've ghosted in addition to that i moved to la and there were a couple of guys that i saw in la that really really liked me and i just got the ick and freaked out and like deleted and blocked them and never talked to them again and that was a really shitty thing to do and they were really into me and so I did exactly what happened to you, Austin, and it's a really shitty thing to do. And then the same thing happened to me. Also, when I was living in um, LA, I also got ghosted by a guy that I really, really liked. So, and it was devastating because the thing is, then you start telling yourself stories about yourself. Then you start, it's like a validation of all the toxic, toxic shame we feel. Um, and it can feel like the end of the world. But the thing is, if somebody ghosts you, it says a lot more about them than it does about you. Speaking from experience, I was so traumatized and so fucked up. Like if my ex's mom internalized any of my behavior to mean anything about her, or if these guys internalized um, any of my behavior, that is tragic because I was a person who was deeply hurting, who didn't have the self-awareness or emotional maturity to have difficult conversations with people face-to-face, and that was on me. So I found an article from February 14th, 2023, lol, these people are savage, they put put it out on Valentine's Day, god, and it's called Love in 2023, Ghosting is the New Normal for Ending Relationship, New Research Shows. And the article says they say old relationships can haunt us for a long time and that may be the case now more than ever before. Researchers from the University of Georgia say two in three people, that's a lot, (laughs) have ghosted someone they were dating and have also been ghosted themselves at some point, providing a fascinating and somewhat antisocial peek into the dynamics of modern dating Ghosting is the tactic of simply ignoring someone in order to end a relationship without having to endure an awkward conversation or offer any kind of explanation. Ghosting has become remarkably commonplace in recent years. This uniquely modern practice, likely the result of the boom in dating apps and smartphones, may be convenient for the one doing the ghosting, but the person on the other end is usually left searching for answers that will never come. Still. Up until now, researchers have conducted little formal research focusing on both why people ghost or the psychological effects of this social phenomenon. Ghosting is becoming a common strategy and it creates an ambiguous situation where one party doesn't really know what's going on, says corresponding study author Christina Lechfer, a doctoral student in the UGA Department of Psychology. We're interested in what individual differences or personal characteristics might influence a person's intentions to use ghosting. We also wanted to know if people with a high need for closure were less likely to use ghosting or if it would hurt more after being ghosted. For those being ghosted, the breakup was a negative experience for almost all participants in the team study. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, fucking duh, I don't think you need a study for this. Ghosting is never going to be a positive experience. You don't need a fucking research study to tell you that. Yes, 10 out of 10 people don't like completely getting cut off with no explanation. Shocker of the century. Notably, among people who yearn for closure, the negative effects of ghosting appeared much worse. Also, duh. To analyze the impact of a given breakup, the participants had to reflect on a past relationship, either a time they were ghosted or directly rejected. Next, they answered questions about their psychological needs satisfaction, feelings of belonging, self-esteem, control, and meaningful existence. Ghosted participants displayed some of the lowest needs satisfaction. In other words, they were hit the hardest by the rejection. Meanwhile, those who wanted closure reported even lower needs satisfaction levels. For recipients, desire for closure has this magnifying effect. When someone with a high need for closure recalled a time when they were ghosted or directly rejected, it hurt more than if they had a low need for closure. This is so duh. Like I just, sometimes when like researchers announce this stuff, like it's some kind of novel awakening concept, I'm just going, what? But they also felt more positive after recalling times when they were acknowledged by their partner. Sorry, guys, I'm just literally like just want to say duh a million times. On the other hand, when a person thought about initiating a breakup, the connection between closure and ghosting varied. We actually found that people who had a higher need for closure were slightly more likely to intend to use ghosting to end a relationship. Now that's, that's interesting. That's an interesting finding. They're saying here that the people who ranked themselves as desperate for needing closure, they we're more likely to ghost. (laughs) So it goes to say, it tracks with what I was talking about before, right? Is that we often want to be treated nicely, but we and with respect and have things ended in a way that allows us to understand why, even if it's painful so that we can move on. But at the very same breath, we are willing to completely neglect giving this courtesy to other people. So the article goes on to say, even though things may be ambiguous on the recipient side, the person who's ghosting sees it as a distinct end to the relationship. Those results weren't definitive in our study, but they pose an interesting avenue for future research. To be clear, study authors note that ghosting doesn't take place just on dating apps. Over half the study participants reported a time when they also were ghosted by a friend, as opposed to a romantic interest. The individuals who were ghosted by a friend reported feeling just as bad about the relationship as those who wrote about a time when they were ghosted by a romantic partner. In psychology in general, a lot of literature regarding adult relationships focuses on romantic relationships, and this research shows that friendships are really important to our study as well. So I found this newer article in Vogue, from june 2023 and it says is ghosting about to become a thing of the past i'm going to read a couple excerpts from this article not the whole thing but it says ghostings associated with a digital generation of daters one precariously close to experiencing social media burnout it's normal for algorithmically determined suitors to hide behind screens skirting around accountability and red receipts i'm complicit It's easier and it's pretty much all I've ever known, but it feels like the tide is starting to turn. An increasing number of people are deleting the apps to find dates IRL, and those who remain in the cycle of swipes are grappling with a new set of standards. I find it really interesting because if we're really thinking about it, dating apps are a relatively new phenomenon. And this is giving me a lot of thought fodder for the end of my own first marriage because my ex was working in stockbroking at the time. He was around a bunch of finance bros and Tinder had just come out. And all of these guys were already cheating on their wives because they were going out to clubs and snorting lines of Coke and getting bottle service and just getting validation from women. And it was like a cool thing to just cheat on your partner, like an unspoken thing. And My ex told me when I caught him cheating and the tears came and the conversation happened that all the guys at work were doing it and it was a new thing and he just couldn't resist the temptation. Dating apps really made us objectify people even more. It's a temptation of like there's always something better around the corner, you know? It's a really, really interesting cultural shift that we've experienced and when this all happened to me it was like right when tinder came out i think it was probably around would have been like 2014 2015 i digress so the article continues by saying anti-ghosting is well and truly here and hopefully here to stay god right now in the age of the internet we love like making little phrases anti-ghosting anti-ghosting is just like what being a good fucking person (laughs) Being like conscious of people's feelings, being, you know, mature. Anti ghosting is well and truly here, according to Vogue. My fellow Gen Zers are popularizing the term anti-ghosting on TikTok, sharing examples of anti-ghost texts, asking their grandmothers to rate their replies, and videoing themselves typing anti-ghosting prompts into ChatGPT. There are even a handful of new anti-ghost dating apps on the market, such as Elate and Snack. I've never heard of either of these maybe you have. It's nice to know that you can gain some kind of closure from ghosters by pulling the sheet from over their heads, says Polly, a production assistant from Glasgow, who called out a guy she'd been dating on Hinge after he ghosted her when she confessed her feelings. Not only does a prompted response validate the hurt and anger you felt during their silence, reassuring you that you didn't make this whole thing up, but it means that you can truly let those feelings as well as that person go. I think everyone should call ghosters out. I think also like call out culture is very mm, questionable. I don't think you have to call people out. I think you should just, if they're going to be shitty and ghost you, you need to heal on your own. I don't think you need to go on a witch hunt and attack people and call them out. But that's just me. I don't think it does anything for you. And it just will give someone fodder to call you a crazy person. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just think that it's better to not, but that's my big sister Molly advice. What, what the fuck do I know? We use the term ghosting to excuse poor behavior adds dating coach Haley Bystrom In dating there should either be progress or closure. It's kinder to allow someone to move on. It's very hard to truly figure out someone else's reason for ending things. So rather than playing a guessing game, you can draw a line under the relationship by asking them to own their actions. Natalie, a sales manager in Leeds, this this is clearly an article from like Vogue UK, was ghosted by a guy she'd been dating for six months. I went through all the emotions under the sun when it happened, then it was just anger. Eventually I texted him and asked what was going on and he replied instantly. I think if you've met someone, even just once, you owe them a bit of an explanation. Now see, I'm uncomfortable personally with this, like you owe them and you should call them out. This is very Gen Z culture in my opinion. And I think millennials are pretty guilty of this too. There's a whole like call out ownership, um, take accountability, right? People don't owe us shit, you know? Is it the mature thing to do? Is it the emotionally mature thing to do? But we can only change ourselves. We can only change our own behavior. And if you were my, you know, younger sibling or friend and you came to me for advice, I would never tell you to like text someone and say, why did you ghost me, right? Like if someone's not replying to you and they ghost you, take that as a sign of their own maturity and dodge the bullet and move on. Because if you ask them, Why? And they give you some projected crappy reason of why they don't think you're a compatible partner. It's just going to make you feel like shit. And they don't even know you well enough to really say. So, my response to these people in this Vogue article is like, do you really want to know? Because you don't, trust me. And it wouldn't even be an accurate reflection of why. It's probably more about their own emotional immaturity. And sometimes, too, like they just didn't feel you. And that's fine. You don't need to hear. Why? It's just going to make you feel like shit. So in summary, this Vogue article is unhelpful. (laughs) It literally basically is just telling you to like call people out and people need to own their actions. And then yet another TikTok trend of anti-ghosting. I can't get over like the TikTok and Instagram carousel culture of like creating words for things, which is just like being a decent human being with like emotional maturity and critical thinking skills. Like, you don't need to package it up into a cute little name. <laughs> I think the best next thing that we could talk about is like, how how do we end things with someone without being a ghoster? It's very rare for both people. All right, everyone, you know what that means. That's it for today's free version of Back From The Borderline. You'll really wanna unlock the full version of this episode because it goes on for a while and I really get into how to end things without ghosting. I even provide some scripts of things that you can say. I talk about how to get over it if you have been ghosted, some practical things you can do without making a fool of yourself and sending text upon text upon text, hand up, guilty. I've done that myself. So if that interests you, you're going to need to become a premium submarine to unlock the full version of this episode. And when you become a premium submarine by joining my Patreon community, you also unlock hundreds of hours of bonus content. To do that, just visit backfromtheborderline.com or click the link in the episode description to become a premium submarine today. I even have an additional tier in Patreon called Ultra Premium Submarine. And those Submarines are going to also get access to my private voice notes where I just open up a little bit more about my life. And so they're getting all the bonus content, all the full episodes, as well as my voice notes. So you can select which tier is right for you. If you're not quite ready to become a premium submarine, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or sharing an episode with someone you care about. To make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow back from the borderline on your favorite podcast app. You're definitely going to want to do that because we are going to be diving into parts two and three of this scapegoat series over the next two weeks and you won't want to miss out when I drop those. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weaknesses, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strengths If only you would dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday.